Welcome, everyone, to the LSAT Pros Podcast. I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks. And I'm Steve Schwartz from LSAT Blog. And we're here to answer your LSAT questions. Got one here that I love. The student's asking, the LSAT is in many respects like a language. As someone who has studied Spanish, I believe the best way to learn a language is to practice it, speak it, and live it. How does one live the LSAT? I love this question because it reflects a trend I notice in top scorers especially for logical reasoning, where they end up interpreting real-world arguments in, in everyday life as if they were LSAT questions, whether it's a conversation with a significant other or friends, or the speeches from a politician they might hear on TV. Once you start analyzing the arguments you hear in everyday life through the LSAT lens with that critical and skeptical LSAT mindset, that means you've truly adopted the LSAT as a native, intuitive way of thinking. Yeah. And I, I have to admit, when I first heard this question, I thought like, oh, I, I don't understand this question at all. How do, you, how do you live the LSAT? But then it occurred to me that it's like a fish in water who, you know, doesn't know the water's all around them. I naturally am in this mode. I naturally apply LSAT thinking to all arguments that I hear. It's just how I think. And so it made me annoying to friends until I learned to tone, until I learned that people didn't want to hear the flaws in their arguments and I toned it down. Um, but it made me good at the LSAT when I turned to it because that's just my natural thought process. So yeah, I, I hear from people who have made improvements on the LSAT. They'll say that, like, whoa, like, I listen to my friends now and I start hearing all these LSAT flaws. It's like, what is going on in my head? So it, it absolutely is the way to really get good at it. But how does someone live the LSAT and, like, apply this reasoning everywhere? Well, there are a couple of ways. I mean, my, my favorite way would be to just look for flaws, like classic logical fallacies, like personal ad hominem attacks or correlation causation or confusing necessary and sufficient conditions. I think those are a couple of really common classic fallacies that people really do make in everyday life that do also come up on the LSAT. But there was something that you and I were discussing earlier, Graham, which was the idea of steel manning arguments. Yeah. How, how do you think about steel manning? So I think about steel manning as like the opposite of straw manning. Straw man is when someone gives you an argument, you like attack a weaker version of it made out of straw. Steel man is when someone makes an argument and you want to disagree with it, you don't just disagree with the version presented, you actually make it stronger. So if someone's made like tiny and consequential flaws in their argument, you try and fix those and see if you can like save the fundamental argument and get better, and then see if you can still argue against that. In fact, you may not be able to depending on like how good the argument is. Um, so this like really reinforces rigorous and fair thinking and helps you evaluate an argument neutrally without getting like too engaged with it and sidetracked by smaller things. Now, are there certain question types where you think this becomes especially useful in logical reasoning? For example, of course, strengthening questions come to mind, sufficient assumption questions come to mind, but how do you see this playing out in other question types? I personally, you might have a different opinion, but I personally think of this more just an indirect tool to like train people how to think. And that like, I sort of naturally will try and strengthen others' arguments and weaken my own arguments. And that's how you make better arguments against people. And that's how you make your own arguments stronger. When I'm making an argument, I try always to think, like, is there some other way this could be? Am I missing something? Um, so I'm not really directly applying it to questions. I mean, I suppose on a strength and I am steel manning it, but I don't really think about it that way. For me, it's more just this is a tool to adopt the mindset that will indirectly lead to success on the LSAT. But I don't know, do you, would you apply that specifically to any questions? I think the nicest thing about steel manning for logical reasoning is that it could help you really refine 
your interpretation of what a stimulus is saying so that you're, you can become more certain that you're not reading things into the stimulus that aren't there. A lot of times students will uh, hypothesize or they'll kind of, um, what's the word? I guess they're kind of projecting things onto the stimulus that are not actually present. And I think part of the process of steel manning is to understand exactly what someone is saying and not reading anything additional into it. Mm. But personally, when I'm looking at a stimulus, I tend to take a more antagonistic approach where I think of the argument as either containing a major gap where maybe they didn't bother to explicitly state something that they perhaps could or should have stated, or the argument is fundamentally flawed in some way where they failed to consider something. So, for example, for resolve the paradox question, I wouldn't think to steel man that. I would think, wow, that person has failed to consider a way in which these multiple statements could both be true simultaneously. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I, I think... You did make me realize there is one way that I steal man arguments. Like I think if people find an argument and they, you know, they think like, oh, this, this is like a, it seems like a correct argument if they're doing logical reasoning. Then the question you want to ask is like, well, how could this be wrong? And I think that's the more common scenario. That's like the antagonistic looking for the flaw scenario. But on some other questions, some people read an argument and they're just like, oh, this is stupid. In that case, you want to ask yourself, how could this be right? Like what, what was the author trying to do here? What was their mindset and what were they trying to go for? What assumption might they have been making that if they added it would actually make this right? Um, that would apply in a necessary assumption, for example, but it also can help you describe the flaw in other questions. Um, so I guess I, I didn't think about it, but I guess I am steel many questions when I occasionally ask, how can this be right? It's something that comes up more when I write explanations, when I, I find an argument that I feel just looks stupid, but I'll ask that to prompt people to think about how to understand it. Yeah, I think it especially comes up when you're considering potential alternative explanations or scenarios. So for example, if we come back to correlation causation arguments, if you have a supposed explanation for a given result, or someone saying that, let's say, A is not responsible for B, you want to point out alternative possibilities that did not occur. Because if those did not occur, that makes the given one more likely. And there was one other thing you mentioned that I thought was worth highlighting, which was like, when you're steel manning, you're not adding stuff onto it. You're trying to understand like precisely what someone is saying. And I think that's really the core of logical reasoning, like unemotionally precisely understanding what's being said that I think it's worth emphasizing as like that when you're talking about how to live an LSAT mindset, that is how you should approach things. So to first understand and then to react, because a lot of people they hear something and they'll start reacting right away without necessarily understanding what has been said or asking a follow-up or like, did you mean this? Or were you thinking of it in this way? Um, so you want to sort of reserve judgment and instead analyze first, judge later. I think that's a great point because a lot of times students will see a stimulus, they'll see a particular topic, and they'll jump to a conclusion about what was actually being stated rather than what is actually in the text itself. So going back to the text and seeing what did the argument actually say? What did the stimulus actually say? Not your assumption about where the argument was likely to go. Mm -hmm. A lot of times on tougher logical reasoning questions, they'll actually have a counterintuitive method of reasoning. Like there are some weird flaws that are not your classic logical fallacies, but rather a twist on a logical fallacy. So 
they'll have some some sort of reasoning that you might not ever really see in everyday life, but people will instead assume that it is what you would see. Yeah. So to bring it back to like the outside, the LSAT, how do you live an LSAT life? Do you have any practical tips on this? Um, one thing that comes to mind is me, to me is like the habit of saying like, oh, wait, no, I'm wrong. Because this is one of like the hardest things for people to do. But if you, you know, if, you, if you're arguing with someone, start to consider like, is there a flaw in your own approach and maybe make a concession or something? You may not win arguments this way, but you might because people do appreciate fairness. But this will start having you like the easiest person to fool it yourself. And if you start evaluating what you say, I think it'll build a good habit. Yeah, I think that a lot of it comes down to humility and realizing that you actually often don't have enough information to derive a conclusion or to be certain in your conclusion. A lot of times the evidence is insufficient to make a claim that we'd like to make. And so being aware of that and being aware of just how limited our information is, a lot of times it's much harder to derive a direct conclusion than we might like it to be. And I would also say, um, like, just to try and apply it all the time. So when you're reading the news, when you're listening to politics, like, just always have that mode on, I think will really help. And a couple of ways you can, like, help do it is to have an exercise of, like, one, you can take the adversarial approach. So when, like, an opposing politician is speaking, don't just think, like, oh, I hate that person. Think, like, like why are they wrong? Like, what are the reasons? And again, how could they be right? Um, so, like, what are they actually trying to say? And why is it still wrong? That's, like, working the steel man in. And then, like, when your own politician speaks, then think, like, how could they be wrong? Or try and steel man that, as in, like, could this be made even stronger? Is there a better argument they could have made? And just try and play around with the arguments like that. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea, especially with everyday news with current events. And looking for the general principles that could apply. If a general principle is valid, then how would that impact the argument? Or what alternative... Uh, information or what alternative uh, considerations might be relevant or be irrelevant to a given claim yeah so great question um i think everyone should like try and do this because i i've heard some people say that like the lsat has helped them in other areas like if they really get good at it it like stuck with them um which is like payoff for all the pain and suffering you go through in these like months of LSAT prep that you just feel like why universe um you actually can get something like valuable out of this so I, I think this is like worth thinking about as just like a mode of thinking to keep with you um all right the next question is what is your advice on when we should start guessing filling in the circles to guess for example when there are two minutes remaining in the section stop working and guess fill in the bubbles um, I, I feel like in some ways we may be the wrong people to ask since uh, we don't really have to do this. Like I, I always never know exactly what to say when filling this out because it's like it's not what I do. It's what I would do if it happened. But what I would do if it happened, I think, is the five-minute warning is like the big clear mark. I mean, you'd have to keep your eye on the watch too because like I hear some in some centers like Proctor's may sometimes miss that warning. Um, but either when you hear the warning or when your watch is telling you there's not much time left, uh, fill in any bubbles that you haven't done. Um, I would say, I mean, I guess it depends how much time you got left, but maybe preliminarily fill in like your best answer for the guesses, depending on how many guesses there were or how close you are. 
and then start bubbling in after every question for the remaining questions. That said, if you have like two unsure things to go back to and you've only got like one question left, then I would do that question and go back to them. So it depends a little bit. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, of course it depends. I think the five minute warning is definitely a great point to bubble things in if you haven't already done so. Any questions that you were attempting earlier. But personally, I like to bubble question by question, regardless of, of section. So that wouldn't really be an issue. I'd say if I'm at the five minute warning and I have three questions remaining, everything previous has already been bubbled in. And the benefit, one benefit of bubbling as you go is that you clear your mind in between each question that you're doing. But two minutes remaining, I think is a little bit too late to have bubbled everything previous. You're running a big risk there. If they don't give a five minute warning or if you get bogged down or distracted and forget to look at the clock or forget to look at your watch. Yeah, I, th I think they're asking more like if they got two minutes left and they have four questions left that they haven't done, what do they do with those four questions? Like I, not like bubble the whole section, but bubble, uh, you know, yeah. things they didn't answer oh, from before in the end. Yeah, if you're in that case, I think that it would probably be a good idea to to guess or eliminate some questions. But I'd say really you want to get to a point where you're you're not likely to be in that situation. Or if you are in that situation, then of course D comes up slightly more than other answer choices. So when in doubt, choose D. I thought they eliminated that. I, th I thought like PowerScore uh, analyzed that, found it was D, but then they like responded to it and like fixed the discrepancy or fixed the, the tendency. Oh, I guess we'll have to look at the latest data on that. Then. Yeah. The, and even when there was like a slight advantage, like it, it didn't, it, it was like so tiny. I, I, I think like summing up this question is basically like, it doesn't really matter because A, you don't want to be in that situation and B, um, apart from like, you know, like a catastrophic failure where you're just like, oh, darn, I had just like haven't answered any of the ones like I didn't guess on anything. As long as you avoid that, it's all pretty much fine. Um, oh, I, I did just want to clarify that like, I tend to bubble every two pages. So like I never, I do not recommend leaving everything unbubbled and bubbling in at the end because it takes like two or three minutes. I think I've timed myself doing it. So you want to do it in some way as you go, either like after each question like Steve does or when you turn a page like I do, either one's fine. Just have stuff filled in. You don't want like a scramble and a missed bubble at the end because there's nothing, nothing that will save you if you miss bubble. Like even a manual review will not, they're, they're not going to give you points for like, but you see if I just bubbled one higher, I would have had all the right answers. Uh, they, they don't, they don't do that. Um, I, I don't think it's like that important. Yeah. All right. So following up on our last episode, we're talking about algorithms for logical reasoning in particular. Yeah. So this is like our approach to like how we approach a question so that, you know, even if we're in like stressed or whatever, we know what steps to do next. So we're not just sitting there frazzled staring at the question. Cause I, I think everyone should have like something like this. And I think it's going to be different for, I mean, maybe Steve and I will have the same algorithm, but I'm guessing we have a different approach. Um, but I think you should, everyone should build their own approach so you can use ours sort of model yours. So Steve, uh, do you have like a thing you do on every question? Yeah, sure. So general, in general, I read the question stem first. I decide of course, which question type I'm dealing with. And if it's a question where I'm, opening the door to new information like strengthen or weaken, I might start automatically thinking about additional things to add to the stimulus. Otherwise, I might think more about the gap. But regardless, I'm looking for in the stimulus, what's the conclusion, what's the evidence, 
what's the general method of reasoning? How reasonable is it? How warranted or justified are any underlying assumptions? So I'm really just engaging and evalu with and evaluating the argument itself. I recently published a video on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash LSAT blog, where I walk through what I consider to be a 170 plus logical reasoning strategy. And in that video, I walk through how you can take a given stimulus and turn it into a variety of different question types just by modifying the language slightly. And so I think this stimulus-centered approach really allows you to engage more deeply with the argument itself. And uh, before we move on to me, do you have anything like on the answer choices as part of your approach? It's hard to speak about that broadly in general. I might, if I have a prephrase, of course, I'll, I'll be scanning the choices for that, but I'm not usually looking to the answer choices to just supply me with something from the outset. Yeah. Okay. So what I do, what are um, your thoughts? I start with the stimulus usually. Um, but sometimes, you know, I'll read it and just my mind will go blank. In that case, I'll give my mind like a rest by reading the question stem. So I sort of keep the question stem like in reserve as like a, you can idle for a moment mind while like I do this other thing and then we come back to the hard bit. Um, but if everything's going well, I'll just read the stimulus and think about it. And I'll usually be trying to identify the conclusion reasoning at that point. Or I might, you know, give my mind, even if I feel I've understood it, I might go to the question stem, think about that, and then go back and identify the conclusion reasoning. Like it, it's sort of like, I'll try and look for points where my mind needs a break and then switch to the other thing. Um, but I'm generally trying to get conclusion reasoning and then I try and think like, what's wrong with this? Or if it's like identify the conclusion or whatever, then, you know, I'm obviously just trying to identify that. But for the flawed argument type questions, I'm usually trying to think like, what's wrong with this? Um, and then I'll try and formulate a prephrase based on that. Now, I want to cover like the wrong case or the, not the wrong cases, but the cases where things go badly. Because like on, on the good case, I'll just, I'll read it, I'll understand it, I'll prephrase it, I'll read the question stem and I'll find the answer very quickly and I'll pick it and move on. Um, so that's if things go well. But I feel like these are more useful when things don't go well. So like say I've read it and I've read the stem and I still don't know the conclusion reasoning. I'll usually read it again and see if I can get that. And if I feel like I'm like on the cusp of something, then I might keep at the stimulus and go. But if I feel like I'm just lost, then I'm usually going to go to the questions, the answers. Like, And usually the answers are not giving me information. But in the case where I'm just lost, sometimes they do like I read them like, oh, like this is the direction the question's going. Uh, I should have been focusing on that. Um, but once I get to the answers, I'll read through and I'll usually narrow it down to like two or something. And again, in the right case, I'll just see the answer and I'll move on. But if I'm down to two on the answers, then I'll go back to the stimulus because I'll know that I've missed something. Because if you have all the information, then you will, generally speaking, just see the answer. Like if, if another answer seems tempting, it's because there was something that was missed. It's usually missed from the stimulus rather than you misunderstood something. But the answer choice, and it, it is never the case that like there's two answers that are both right and one's more right. Um, so I'll go back to the stimulus to see what I missed. And then ideally, then I'll find it and I'll pick the right answer. But if at that point, then I don't. So in other words, I read the stimulus once or twice, didn't feel I understood it. Uh, or even if I felt I did, but I'm down to two answers. and I've looked back again and I'm still at two. At that point, I skip. And I think this is an important part of the process to like know at what point it's diminishing marginal returns to being on that question and that you should skip because every question is worth the same thing. So if you spend five minutes on a question, that's 
several questions you couldn't answer because of that. Um, and I find it's more effective to skip at like, I don't know, maybe the two minute marker. I don't actually time these things, but however long it takes me to get through that process, I'll skip um, mark it in some way and then come back to it later at the end. And the way that you have time at the end, I mean, obviously at like a certain level, you just don't have time at the end no matter what you do. But when you're getting up like above 160 level, usually you can make time at the end if you're rigorous about skipping questions. And then when you come back, often you get that moment that people think of like, well, geez, of course it's E. What, what was I thinking before? You know, time away from the question gives your mind some time to like sort of sit on it, work some stuff out in the background and come back. So that's my overall approach. Yeah, I love it. There are a couple of things I wanted to pull out of that. One of them is down to two choices, checking them against the stimulus rather than against each other. That's one thing I would definitely agree with because like you said, they LSAC in the questions then they'll say which one most strengthens or most weakens. But 99% of the time, one strengthens, four don't, one weakens, four don't. So you want to check the choices against the stimulus. They only make sense in the context of the stimulus. But you don't want to be looking for the small differences between each other the vast majority of the time. The other thing you were talking about, which skipping and coming back, I also is something I do as well. I don't want to get bogged down in a particular question that's stumping me. I'd rather go to the end of the section and come back. And ideally, if I'm shooting for 165 plus, I want to have three to five minutes remaining at the end of a section so that I can go back and tackle those tough questions that I was stumped on earlier. I might flag even three or four questions, but having that fresh perspective helps me break out of that tunnel vision in terms of seeing the question or the argument from only one perspective. And that new perspective coming back can help to break through on that question. Yeah, I agree. And um, so one thing that I want to elaborate on that this like method lets you do is if you're frozen, then you know what to do in the step like it. And so you actually want to like rehearse this. I mean, pick whatever elaborate whatever method you're doing, but rehearse your own method so that if you're like, oh, I don't know what to do, then the next step, well, what's the next step? It's like, I don't know, read the question stem or it's go back to the stimulus or it's skip or it's like, but it's there's always like a next thing to do and skip is actually in the process. So skip is not a reason for panic. Um, and if you have this down, like you don't ever just get stuck and think like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, there's always a thing. I actually like had a failure of this on logic games once where I normally don't have to skip logic games, but there was one game on like one recent test. I don't remember what it was where like, I really just should have skipped it, but because it like hadn't happened to me in so long, I stayed on it too long. And I, once I got to the actual hard game of the test, cause it wasn't the hard game that I don't know what happened on the game, but, uh, because I hadn't skipped it, I was just like really short on time and the section went badly. Um, so having that skip in there, it lets me do it without feeling bad. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, if you're stuck between two, this is just in passing, but I often hear people say like, oh, I'm always stuck between two and I choose the wrong one. Um, when you feel stuck between two, you should mark that question in some way that like for later review shows to yourself you were stuck between two, because I think in most cases, people actually choose 50-50. They just, they only look at the ones that got wrong, so they always see the, the ones that got wrong. Um, and I, I have an article on my site called uh, How to Get Faster at Logical Reasoning, where I cover my approach. I don't know if I actually wrote out the whole algorithm, but you'll see parts of what I just described, like discussed in more detail in the sections of the article. 
Um, we'll put both that article and your uh, logical reasoning, like 170 plus mindset video in the show notes. So you guys can check those out. All right. Um, the next question is if I'm short on time in a section, is it worth spending time to draw inferences and drawing an elaborate game board? So I'm guessing this person is talking about logic games or should I proceed to the questions as soon as possible? So I would say yes and no to this thing. And those are yes and no in the parts. So is it worth time trying to draw inferences? Yes. Drawing an elaborate game board? Probably not. Just because, I mean, obviously if the game is most efficiently done with an elaborate game board, then no, you should actually draw the elaborate game board. But I feel on games, people actually have like a risk of spinning their wheels like we talked about in the last episode of like drawing could be true stuff. So if you're short on time, erring aside of just clearly listing the rules and drawing them in a way that you can refer to them, thinking for a moment about any inference you can get, and then going to the questions. So if you rush to the questions, you're not going to be able to do much effectively. Um, but you don't want to spend too much time on the diagram. You just need to get like, you need something for reference that you can use. Yeah, I agree. I think you do need some kind of diagram. Maybe it's not fully fleshed out, but you do need something. Maybe minimal, just a series of of slots or columns, for example, depending on the game. Drawing inferences, of course, is necessary. You've got to have something. But there are certain questions I would definitely prioritize. And this reflects my overall games method, which would be to do the orientation questions first, then local questions, and then finally the global ones. And if you're short on time, orientation, that's kind of a gimme if you understand the rules correctly. That's kind of a warm up, so you could knock that out pretty easily, even if you barely understand anything of the game. And then your local if questions, they give you a jumping off point, they give you a starting point. So let's say if K's on three, you put K on slot three, and then you see whatever immediately follows from that kind of like a domino effect, and you knock those out. And maybe if you didn't make major inferences or you don't have a ton of hypotheticals, maybe you won't be able to easily do the global questions, but at least you can knock out those orientation and local ones and pick up a few easy points. That's a great point. Um, especially like if you're really short on time, you don't even have to draw anything to do the orientation question. Like I actually don't use a drawn diagram. I just read the rules and do it. So if I had like a minute and a half left on the section, I would just do that and answer it and then guess the rest. And on the global local, like I guess I always just go through the questions in order when I have enough time, but I think I was short on time. I probably would do that just because the, the local ones tend to be so much faster. I think we hit this one pretty well. Yeah. Small logic still worth spending time on. It seems these questions have all but disappeared from more recent exams. I think formal logic is always an element of the LSAT. I don't think that's really changed in any in any way. I think it might be a little bit more hidden in certain cases, but of course, principal application questions, those often involve formal logic. There are anytime you have conditional statements, we can frame that as formal in some way. And formal logic on the LSAT is not there's it's not really that complicated. There isn't really that much to know. If you can create conditional chains linking conditionals together, if you could take counterpositives, if you know some of the formulas underlying certain questions like sufficient assumption, then you pretty much know everything you need to know. But I think these are things you've got to be able to do, to do no matter what. And so it's worth getting the basics down. Yeah, 
And there is one section from which conditional logic has not disappeared, and that is logic games. And the the thinking that underlies conditional logic on logical reasoning is pretty much the same as on logic games. And I, I remember there was one more thing I wanted to add about the last question, which is that, you know, they, they asked, uh, do I need to do drawings? Like, every LSAT tutor does drawings for logic games, so they are, like, absolutely a necessary component there. And on logical reasoning, even though it's not that common anymore, there are still some questions where, like, the absolute best method does involve conditional logic. And because conditional logic comparatively is so easy to learn, because like really you can explain the basics of it in like 20 minutes or less, and then the rest is just practice. Um, it's a tool that can flip a hard question on a section to an easy question. And like, that's a huge bonus because it probably saves you a minute and a half and gets you a point. Yeah. Speaking of algorithms, like formal logic in a way is the closest thing you get to an algorithm on the LSAT. So ver let's say versus, um, informal logic where you have to really more engage with the argument and either you get the method of reasoning or you don't but with formal logic you don't have to understand a method of reasoning in a real world conversational sense you just draw a diagram and it spits out your answer and so that is a nice yeah. thing to be able to do and like you said graham it does come up in games as well so if you're learning games you're already going to learn the logical the formal logic that you need for those logical reasoning questions yeah, because the thing is, like, when I see people that struggle with formal logic on logical reasoning, they're never acing logic games. Like, they're making the same kinds of mistakes. Um, so getting good at one will indirectly help you with the other. Um, I, I'd say the main thing to watch out for is just, like, just this awareness that it is rare on the newer ones is good to have. Like, you shouldn't be trying to diagram everything. But um, my, my other thought on this is just that, like, it's so hard to know what to learn in logical reasoning. Like the, the things that you don't know are intangible and hard to grasp. Formal logic is like this one glorious thing that just is easily describable and easily learnable. If you just do like some drilling that it's like, even though it's not so common, it's every point counts. And it's very silly to just yeah, throw it away. It's kind of an anchor. You can always go back to as a technique for solving certain logical reasoning questions. But of course for games, it's a fundamental yeah all right um next question is when i've eliminated three answer choices for an lr question what is the best possible way to check the remaining two against each other i feel like we already answered this that basically you don't check the remaining two against each other you go back to the stimulus and see what you've missed because if two things seem right it's a crystal clear sign that you missed something and that's I can't expand on this actually. That's actually valuable knowledge to know that you missed something. It's, if I locked you in a room and gave you an LR question and didn't have uh, any answers to it, just like an LR stimulus, and I said like, all right, uh, if you can figure out everything in this question, then you get a reward. Uh, you can take as much time as you want and then come out when you feel that you're ready and you've got all the information that there is and you get a million dollars if you do. Like that would be nerve wracking. Because, like, how do you know that you actually got everything? Like, you know, you might feel you get everything, but there's a million dollars at stake. And, like, do you really know? Like, how much time Like, how much time would you spend? You could spend days analyzing this just to make sure you didn't, like, miss that. But the, the negative knowledge, if you have, like, two answers that seem right, then you affirmatively know you don't know everything and that you can spend more time on it. 
that's highly valuable. And that's, um, that's the benefit of having two remaining answers. You know that there's something still missing. And I think it requires going back to the stimulus, like you said, especially for a parallel reasoning question. There must be something about the structure of the argument that you're missing. Maybe it's a key word. Maybe it's the degree of certainty that they're concluding. Maybe it's the category of what they're discussing, how they're qualifying things in the stimulus. But it's those little small, it's those small words that make all the difference. And checking the small words in the choices may not be productive because that may not be where the answer lies. But within the stimulus, that's your anchor. You can always trust in the stimulus as given. And so for that reason, I think it's worth, it's worth going back there instead. Yeah. And a couple of techniques that may help, and this will depend on the question type, is one, you can compare words from the stimulus or concepts from the stimulus to the answers. This doesn't apply generally, but there are some questions where you'll realize that an answer says like one thing and the stimulus says another. And like, oh, I thought I was talking about the stimulus, but actually it's not. You can spend, once you're down to two, you have more luxury to spend time on individual answers that way. The other thing that you can do is, actually, I've lost my train of thought. Do you have anything else? I, uh... Well, I think that the mistake in checking the remaining answer choices against each other is in thinking that one answer choice is kind of right and the other is actually right. I think we have to come back to the idea that one choice is correct and the other four are wrong. And the four that are wrong are all wrong for very specific reasons. And this is something to to look at upon review. I think that you'll you'll deepen you'll you'll remove this issue altogether is if you're able to, when reviewing, spot what is tempting about the wrong answer that makes it wrong and what was what was tempting about that choice and what ultimately makes it wrong. I think that's what you have to focus on, those patterns in wrong answer choices because then you'll if you can spot it then you won't be in this situation anymore and i remembered what i was yeah, going to say uh the other thing that you can do is you look for what does what do the words in the answer refer to in the stimulus i think this happens most often on flaw questions but like any question where you know they sort of use like you know some people or a thing or like any abstract language like you want to think like what does that thing refer to and then you take the thing and you fill it in it's like a pronoun because you know if you heard a sentence like he walked into the bank you don't know who i'm talking about and if it's like the president walked into the bank or the uh beggar walked into the bank or the business person walked into the bank you have like a different view of what's happening and so you want to take that concept and read it into the answer and think like does this answer still make sense that can be a good way to eliminate an answer that seems plausible uh, once you realize, like, oh, no, wait, this is what it's actually talking about, and this makes no sense in terms of, like, the stimulus. Being concrete instead of abstract really can be helpful. Yeah, I agree. Talk. Taking that abstract language in the choices and matching it up against the exact phrase in the stimulus that it's referring to, and this is not always easy to do. This is an exercise to do upon reviewing by either looking at explanations or puzzling through it yourself. Yeah. All right, do you want to... Do one more question? Yeah, yeah let's continue. Oh, right. what's, what's the best way to persevere through a logic game when things simply aren't clicking? In other words, when I can't draw that game-changing inference that allows me to see my way through the game, what strategies should I employ? Well, first of all, I think that there isn't always a game-changing inference. 
in fact, on the more recent games, the curveball games, there is often very little in the way of upfront inferences, and it's more about absorbing a general abstract rule or you know, pattern that you have to constantly apply over the course of the game. So I think that there's, there's that inherent assumption in this question some that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. I said question some question that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But you go back to fundamentals. You go back to you diagramming the rules, making any inferences that you can, even however small they might be, and then taking the local questions, the if limitations, to give you a jumping off point to dive in. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to reiterate, on the older logic games, there used to be a lot more of these like heroic upfront deductions that solved everything. That's increasingly rare. It's still like it's still worth practicing because when it does occur, it really helps you on the game. But it's it's super rare. Like it used to happen every L set. Now it's like every couple of L sets there might be one game like that. Um, but the other thing to add is like so everything Steve said was good. One other technique that you can have in your pocket is just like all hail brute force. Uh, when when like nothing else is left to you, you can always just sit down and see like could it be true that Q is in three? Draw a diagram. Could it be true? B is in seven, draw a diagram. Um, and I think this is something that is good to specifically practice because the thing is like, I've seen some people brute force and it's just like, it's really, really slow and it's not an actual practical tool. But if you practice and practice just drawing like random diagrams like that, you can actually get pretty fast at it. And so it becomes like a thing that's, it's not your best tool. And if you had to do the whole section that way, you would not get a good score. But if you're otherwise solid and just for like a few questions, you're like, well, I got a brute force, like it's fine. Uh, you can get a perfect score on logic games, brute forcing on some questions if you're fast enough at the rest and you've honed your brute forcing such that it's actually a realistic Yeah, tool. I'm glad you took it there, Graham, because I agree. You've got to get fast at drawing hypotheticals. A lot of times students are so hesitant to draw three or four hypotheticals for one question when it really doesn't or shouldn't take that long. How long does it really take to draw seven slots and start just plugging in letters? It's not a lot of writing. And I think part of this comes down to the fact that students aren't always as proficient in absorbing the rules as they should be. You draw, you, you have your yeah. initial rules. Maybe there's what, five rules or something for a game. You have your diagram of those rules and then you apply them over the course of the game. But by, by question five or question six, you should be able to pretty much apply all the rules without looking back at anything because you've drawn enough hypotheticals by that point. I might draw 10 hypotheticals for a game, depending on the game or more, but I'm drawing them quickly. And if one doesn't work for some reason, I'll swap two variables around and I have a new hypothetical off the bat. So being, a, being able to oh, yeah, play around with where the letters are going and swap them when necessary. If one hypothetical doesn't work, you don't have to draw a whole new diagram from scratch. You just cross off whatever didn't work and draw something new. Yeah. And depending on your mind, like I can mentally swap those and like a certain portion of people listening to this will be able to mentally do it. If you can't mentally do it, do what Steve said. Cross off a letter, write another one or just write the letter mm -hmm. above the letter. If you've got to swap R and S, yeah. just do it on like one layer up. You don't even have to cross something off because you might need the original hypothetical, but you just got it there. It can be like informal. Um, and one tip for this also is that, you know, people will sometimes have like a more elaborate main diagram. You can like cut off some details when you're making hypotheticals. 
how much you cut off will depend on like your own mindset and how likely it is to make you make a mistake but they should always be like a little bit less detailed a little bit lighter um than the than the setup and it's good to do them if possible like right beside the question actually for any future listeners who are doing the upcoming digital LSAT this is uh not going to be applicable because you have to do the questions on scrap paper but um yeah it should still be just like minimal and then I I really am glad you brought up that about the rules because I would say like some people are hesitant both because they don't know the rules well enough so if you don't know the rules well enough one thing you can actually do when you're stuck is just go back and read the rules again there's high odds you've simply forgotten a rule this is the cause of like 70 percent probably 90 percent of like logic game slowdowns you're you forgot a rule that that's it (laughs) so you can look at your diagram or read the rules again like it will always speed you up it's always faster to skim over the rules it might take you like 15 seconds compared to just spinning your wheels for 40. but if you actually do know all the rules the second step might be just giving yourself permission to make a diagram because i find like a lot of people are really like scared because like the first time you do logic games it's so hard you get so much wrong that you just i don't know maybe get like some learned helplessness with it um and so even if you know everything you're just like like, "Uh, can i really do that can i really draw like q and three like yes if no rule forbid something you can draw anything you want this is where practice is good you can just like make a ton of diagrams and realize oh this is fine this is fine this is fine you could even do a drill where you like draw 20 diagrams and just check them all against the rules carefully afterwards to see if your fast drawing style was correct but basically if no rule forbids it you can draw anything you want there is no one that's going to like say like no you're wrong if you draw a hypothetical so there's like lots of ways to brute force and disprove something and just, if you know all the rules, give yourself permission to not worry that you've drawn like the best hypothetical because there's like probably a dozen ways to disprove an answer. So all of them are fine. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I, I would encourage students also, don't be so hesitant to draw a diagram and try things out. There's, as you said, there's multiple ways to prove or disprove an answer choice. And you don't need to, to draw all of those ways. You only need one way. If you've seen something occur once, then you know that it could happen. And if, you see, if you've seen something occur, then you know that it's not a cannot and you can eliminate it as an answer choice. Just to tie it back also to something you said earlier about not fleshing out your diagrams fully to give some concrete examples. What that means is for, let's say, a game with seven slots, which I just always use because it's a classic thing that happens a lot, is don't, don't draw the numbers. Don't write out the numbers for those seven slots. That's one way that you could minimize the time and space invested in drawing a hypothetical or you don't have to redraw all of the not laws or restrictions below certain slots you have your diagramming of the rules on your main diagram and you can refer to those rather than rewriting all the rules each time as an example so those are just a few things you can do to speed up how you draw you can also stack multiple scenarios on top of each other even while reusing the same slots you already had And the other thing I should add, just to give you like a model of like how things should be, is that when you're really good at this, every like there's very few pauses. Like you draw one thing, then you draw the next thing, then you draw the other thing. And this could happen where like you draw something, you glance at your rules, you draw the next thing, you glance at your rules, you draw the next thing. Um, that'll be like slightly slower, but basically the same. But like basically you want to try and model success where you're actually just going seamlessly and quickly. Um, so that you're actually training to do good diagrams like just as a drill like not even when you're doing time things but just literally drill yourself making fast correct diagrams and so it becomes routine so that you can just do it when you need to pull this out of your 
back pocket. Uh, yeah, and I think game. that also comes back to being somewhat systematic about how you draw hypotheticals whenever possible. So you could say, well, given the way the rules are oriented, the way the game is oriented, either Q is going to be on slot three, slot six, or slot seven. So you draw Q on three, you see what happens. If that doesn't work, draw Q on six. If that doesn't work, draw Q on seven. But being systematic rather than random about it could help you save time if you're able to do that. That's a good point. I often brute force in like a specific order. I, I uh, use like I think about games in terms of what I call like the most restricted point and that like there's often one thing that's either hard to place or it's easy to violate rules with that variable. So I'll often take care in like if I'm trying to like prove it could be a true scenario, I might take care in like placing that first. I mean, say I'm trying to prove Q is in three, I'll put that first, but then I'll deal with the most restrictive thing at, after that. So that like if I've placed it, then everything else is pretty easy. And I can feel good about my scenario. So I'll go from hardest to easiest in a, like you said, a systematic way so that I'm not just muddling about and like by the end of a whole long diagram, I realize the hard thing can't be placed. Exactly. And I, I would also think about the most restri restricted rules and also the most restricted variables. So I would place my most restricted variables first and then go subsequently until I'm doing my floaters last. And you fill, you fill them in bit by bit as yeah. you go. Yeah. So everything we're talking about here is basically like a tool of practice that, you know, when when you ask one of us, like, how do you do this? Like, it, it took several back and forth for us to get this knowledge. out. So it's like a thing that we know, but it's not necessarily a thing that like we teach or that everyone who's good at this teaches. Um, what you should be taking from this is that you should really be trying to create some system as you go so that you can emulate this method and that you have these like little mental shortcuts for how to go faster, just like people who are good at mental arithmetic like they do all kinds of little things and if you google like mental math shortcuts you can see ways that people go faster so they can add like fast stuff in their heads you want to be developing similar shortcuts for logic games so that you're not just flailing about yeah agreed and i think that this is something that you can listen to us talking about it and you can get some ideas from how we go about it but i don't think this is necessarily something to try and memorize i think it's something to more organically absorb and then bring it into your logic games practice bit by bit what do you think about that Graham? yeah exactly i think it's organically absorbed and i think it's done by practicing it either by doing a lot of games or by specifically drilling it but i don't like i, I think it's good to get ideas and to think about what to do but the only way to do it is to actually the only way to learn it is to actually do it and get it through practice yeah, yeah. and and also hold yourself to a high standard so that you're always doing like some incremental improvement. Like, how could I do that better? How could I do that better? How could I do that better? So that you're never like done and you're instead just refining how you do it so that your process keeps improving. Yeah, yeah, definitely agreed. So best ways to reach us, you can reach me through LSAP blog. And I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube with that username LSAP blog. So just check me out on each of those sites. You can also email me directly through my website. And I'm at lsethacks.com, or you can find me on Instagram at Graham underscore Blake. We'll have uh, all those links to where to find us in the show notes. So you can check those out and we'll see you next time.